The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. Having a wife and a child back is a good anchor. On the other hand, having the wife with you hopefully wouldn't make you go astray the way I did. So there's no ideal situation to keep it illegal forever. Welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of the podcast in which we take you behind the scenes and share some of these secrets in the making of the show. I've returned once again to gorgeous Gowanus, Brooklyn, where the show is made to discuss Episode 2 of Season 4, Pastor Tim. Today, I'll be joined by Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hello, Joe. Hi, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. Hey, how are you? And we have a really exciting special guest, a real-life illegal, as agents like Philip and Elizabeth were known, Jack Barsky. Jack, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the podcast. Uh, I'm glad to join you. Good and talk. <laughs> <laughs> Good and talk. Now, I just want to have one quick question before we get to Jack. We had a crazy scene in this episode of Philip cold killing a transit cop. This guy, are you still telling me he's not just a psychopathic murderer? you got to stop calling him a psychopath. First of all, Jack's right here. Jack was illegal. Jack doesn't look like a psychopath, does he? Does he does not. He's a very charming And Jack. Jack, how many people did you kill on buses? Probably uh, like 10, 11 people? No. These hands have never touched a weapon. <laughs> well, Even in training? Even in training. Never touched a weapon. Hmm. Uh, no weapons training. Only some self-defense. Well, in the, in well of course, Philip, Philip yeah. didn't use a weapon for this particular murder. Jack hasn't seen it yet. But, no. But uh, what choice? He provoked him. He yeah. totally provoked him. I, I mean, how many yeah, times? Can, that. How yeah, many right. t- Exactly. Even Jack says, how many times, <laughs> how many times can Philip just tell the guy to please cut them a break and let them go about their day? <laughs> I mean, I think that, I think actually that transit was suicidal, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really did try to get out of it. I, I feel he, sorry for Philip. I feel sorry for the bus driver who's got to drive around with that corpse under his seat. You know, we spent a lot of time trying to choose the right bus for that. Trying to get a bus from the early '80s is quite a project. Where did that? Where did we send? I don't uh, remember. Will but I, out? To, I, oh yes, our our Will, who was Chris Long, the brilliant director of that episode and our directing producer this season, his assistant Will actually went out for a half a day somewhere to look at all the buses. There's sent a back guy photos. who collects buses yeah, from the like buses. '70s wow. and '80s. He's there's got a like guy a for everything. Park with like <laughs> 50 buses from that era. Joe and I became obsessed with getting the right bus, and we talked how long it should be, how big it should be what era it should be from. And then one day we were working on something completely different. We set out to take a walk to talk about a story and we got a half a block and suddenly we stopped and there was our bus. Wow. It was just sitting there. We initially thought it would be one of those little shorty buses, Uh like, you know, the kind that you see a lot around airports. And then Chris Long, the director was like, I don't think I can accomplish that murder on that small of a bus. I'm going to have to sort of stretch the bus. But then if you see it, that bus is so great and that guy slides under the seat so well. See, we're avoiding the sociopath Mm -hmm. question. I see that. We're we're really just more interested in the bus. Well, see, I (laughs) I, I was sure that the crazy authenticity quest in this episode would have been the 
um, the uniforms of the pilot and maybe even the transit cup. Well, that you know, we, that was a yes. crazy authenticity quest. Which East European country should that pilot be from? We wanted a pilot who they could ask to carry a biological weapon for the KGB. Maybe Jack is going to chime in here because we thought, should he go to these Germans? Because should he go to, go to the Czechs? Uh-huh. Should he, you know, should he go to Hungary? What country would they get the pilot from? And then we had to also find one that where they would. We wanted to try find a country that would be flying in and out of Dulles, and it turned out there weren't any. So that's why we had to set it at JFK. And uh, uh, what country did the, was the pilot flying? I don't all? remember. All I remember is that our brilliant casting director Roy Bergman almost quit because we were so bananas about getting the accent exactly right. right. It had to be a real accent. Right. It couldn't be somebody who could do the accent. We needed someone who's from we're the always actual like that. place. Yeah. And then we realized you couldn't see um, where the uniform was from and it was never mentioned in the episode. <laughs> the, whole anyway. the whole it's thing was basically in our heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of that. And, um, before we get to Jack, one other question about Crazy Authenticity Quest. I noticed that the... So you've got the... CAQ. We should call it CAQ. CAQ. Thank you. Uh, when Elizabeth goes uh, into Pastor Tim's uh, hideaway where he writes his sermons. And of course, the, she found some CSPES uh, information, which was a throwback for me. I, I was active in that area and I was very familiar with <laughs> the committee in El well Salvador yes. we remember yeah. with well. the people of El Salvador um, was that an actual leaflet from the time that was actually yeah that was actually um, Philip who was in his uh, study who finds oh that, excuse that me was that real or did yeah. we make no, that no we I made we the CISPIS thing but the prop on the desk that we became obsessed with was actually Pastor Tim's calendar handwritten of course as you would not have a calendar right. today and in addition to having a lot of church meetings and community action meetings that in a different color ink, in almost a different style of handwriting, because he would have done it all at once uh-huh. on December 31st or January 1st, uh-huh. are all the birthdays and anniversaries. All right. And my father, having been a congregational rabbi, had a calendar that would have been very much like Pastor Tim's. And it had all those committee meetings and uh, all of his commitments and then it had all the personal stuff we spend as much time on that calendar as we spend writing an entire script for this show (laughs) and then you see i remember him i remember a second i remember my dad once saying at the end of every year what is it you transfer from one calendar to the next it's not the appointments it's not the business meetings those are the things you worry about but the things that you transfer the things that matters the birthdays the anniversaries and that's what you have to remember oh my goodness don't cut that out that's those are words to live by. that's right that's right your amazing attention to detail would have come in handy. You would have been a great help in, in developing my cover story, my legend. <laughs> because in hindsight, as I'm writing things down, I realize that there were a lot of holes in there that we didn't really think about and I didn't think about. Uh, there's a lot of talent there that might be tapped into one day. Did it actually create problems for you sometimes? No, not not really... It was marginal. There were a couple of people who came up with question marks, but they didn't never pursued them. Uh, for the most part, the, the cover story, what, who I was, who uh, who I had been until I finally actually appeared in the country, uh, it was more of a psychological of, of a psychological benefit to me to have it just in case. People typically don't ask a lot of questions, especially if you stay away from, from people who might ask a lot of questions, which I, in the first two years, I, you know, I didn't have any girlfriend or anything like that. So, and then I eased into society to a point where I then had enough of a history that I could sort of divert any questions and redirect them 
to talk about stuff that I already knew and experienced. If somebody came up to you at a party and asked for some questions that you weren't necessarily prepared for, how mm-hmm. would you sort of what what would you tell them? How would you respond? What kind of backstory would you give them? Well, um, there's there's two parts to the answer. Uh, I am fundamentally wired to be like really, really honest. My mother would tell me stories about uh, how I, uh, as a child, she observed me playing. There was this one, this, you know, I played a game by myself with the little men running around the board with the, with the dice and I had teams and she saw that I was like, I had my favorite team and, <laughs> and I, was, I was in pain when my team lost, but I would never cheat. So, so I, I'm fundamentally just like wired to tell the truth as I know it, which is not always a good thing. But anyway, <laughs> so, so that way, you believe such a person comes across much more credible. I'm also blessed with an extremely fast operating CPU, central processing unit. My my brain operates at a speed that that I can catch these things very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like when you catch some of these these really really smart guys in the presidential debates when they get caught, I never got caught like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, when, when oh the unexpected question, I always had something, uh-huh. uh, and I didn't have to think about it. You know, good question. So Jack, you were a real Philip Jennings. How did you come to be recruited? Well, well first of all, I have I have to show some humility. Philip Jennings is way out of my league <laughs> yeah. he's, he's got he's got he, he is multi-talented and you know he, he's an engineer he's a, he's a spy he's a marksman he's everything and he's a hell of a travel agent too <laughs> and, he, and he's better looking than me too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway uh how i uh, the recruitment was uh really pretty straightforward it was one day i, I was sitting in my dorm room and uh, East Germany, w- where I studied chemistry, and I got a, there was a knock on the door, and and in came my my roommate. By the way, wasn't conveniently not there that day. It was on a weekend, mm. and some fellow came in and introduced himself as stating that he was an employee of uh, the largest company that worked in the town where I studied, and he wanted to talk with me about uh, uh, maybe one day working for that company. The moment those words were out, Stasi <laughs> came up in my mind. I mean, that, that was speaking of bad covers. That was that was the worst, uh, simply because uh, in those days in East Germany, once you were finished uh, with your degree, uh, your assignment was essentially handled by the university. You know, companies didn't recruit, so you know, and, and so, but, you know, I says, I think Stasi, and I says, well, you know, why not talk, you know, I, I was, I had no reason to be concerned about Stasi whatsoever, so I left the door a little bit open, so we talked, we talked, and see, in the middle of the, the conversation, he changed his tune, he said, you know what, I have to come clean, I really work for the government, <laughs> the government, right, big brother, right, so that was even more Stasi, and so he said, okay, uh, you know, I just wanted to feel you out. Maybe one day you could wind up working for the government, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so at the at the end of the, uh, he, we talked maybe for 45 minutes, he, he asked the question, it was an indirect question to which I gave a satisfactory indirect answer. He said, he asked, well, do you think you could imagine that one day you might work for the government? And my answer was, maybe, but not as a chemist. Mm-hmm. Ah. Question not asked, but not really answered, but we both knew what that meant. 
uh, it was between the lines communication. He he had exactly what he came to get the answer for, and within a couple of meetings, he handed me over to to a Russian. Mm. He didn't ask me. He didn't. He just he, oh, by the way, this is this is Eugen. He's with the KGB. <laughs> was that a bye surprise bye. or yes? And was that? Did you care? Was that upsetting or didn't? No, matter? it was great. Yeah. It was one man moving up to the big, bigger big time. You bet. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. And and then did your training continue in East Germany? Yes, it did. Uh, for a while, it was very informal. During my uh, years, while I was still working on my degree, and and then once I decided, I had to make a decision. You know, wh- which way are you going? You're going to stay at university. N- none of that was ever coerced. It was all uh, voluntary. Um, so once I decided to go, and I already knew it would be the illegal route. Uh, how did you know that? How, how did oh, that, that was discussed very early on. Okay. There was sort of a precondition. Hmm. I didn't want to do anything else. I mean, the only thing that would have gotten me away from, from this phenomenal career I was looking forward to was the adventure, the, the, the romantic mystique of the... You know the lone wolf who mm. does great things and on behalf of the revolution to help mankind become a better place. It's so wonderfully attractive to a young person. And in addition, it, I would have been really, you know, it was a recognition that I was really somebody special. You yeah. know, just flattery gets you very far. How do you think they picked you? Uh, it's all guesswork. Uh, there, I have two friends who uh, actually were working with the Stasi. Before I even was uh, n- 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 approached, they both claimed that they they suggested me. But there's also a, a, a thought that they just picked me out of records because I, I was a recipient of a national scholarship. And as you know, the CIA always has traditionally recruited from the top Ivy League schools and and so did the Russians. They they went you know they went you know to recruit the top folks out of university. So it could have been a combination of the two. Now Philip and Elizabeth never speak Russian, even with their handler in the United States. Was that also true of you? Did you exclusively communicate in English? Uh, primarily, yes. Uh, some German. Uh, f- funny thing, my 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 liaison. I. I got two years of training in Moscow. My liaison actually spoke only German. He didn't speak English. Uh, for the most part, the folks that I worked with that uh, you know pointed me towards the United States, they had spent some time in the U.S. They spoke uh-huh. English. The technicians were mostly, they spoke only Russian. So that's where uh, my handler just did the translation. But over time, I picked up enough Russian to uh, understand most of it. There was no, you know, I wasn't treated like a Russian. You know, there was uh-huh. no, there uh-huh. was no intent for me to to learn to speak Russian. Don't don't you, you know, don't even do any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you you here to learn English. So was it different for you being an East German? You think that they. You know, did the KGB treat you differently? Were you on a? I wouldn't a, know. I don't yeah, know how they treat, treated yeah. uh, their own. Uh, I was treated with uh, fundamentally treated very well, uh, with quite a bit of admiration. I, you know, they they bought into they bought it into the mystique that they cre- created themselves. You know, the the the, the hero, mm-hmm. undercover agent, and I was going to be one of those. 
And they were really impressed with my ability to speak English as well as you can because what I was told that Russians, because of the dissimilarities of the languages, would not be able to uh, reduce the accent to the minimum that, that I still have. You know, there was uh, we talk a lot about the uh, Martha story and how that's based on actual stories of KGB illegals who married secretaries and other mm-hmm. those positions. And for some reason, most of those Romeos, as they called them, mm-hmm. were East Germans mm. rather than rather than Russians. Well, uh, Marcus Wolf, who was the, the Stasi, uh, the head of the whatever the foreign intelligence uh, section of the Stasi. He used a lot of Romeos. I mean, you, you, I read his autobiography. That was one of the, the biggest the, the, the way of, of gathering intelligence. I don't know to what extent the KGB did that and not to what extent it was done here. I'm sure there was some. Huh. Um, the Jenningses, one of the things that really strikes me, they never seem to be afraid of their handler or the center or anyone above them. They don't, they don't seem to have any fear of anyone more senior than them in the KGB. They're very confident. Did you share that kind of confidence? I mean, because in most jobs, you're a little bit afraid of your boss, <laughs> and yet it seems they never they never seem to be. <laughs> I was more afraid of my bosses in corporate America. <laughs> uh, in the ordinary, in the, in, the, in the course of ordinary interaction, there was never any fear, and it was the, the fear was not injected uh, yeah. from their their end either. It was a very collegial type of relationship, and these were not they were highly educated people, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, these were not the types of people that went around killing people. So what what you have in 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 your characters, you have a a, a, a fusion of the real bad guys and the intellectuals. Hmm. Right. Right. And and that makes sense. For, and a little bit of Romeo and, and Juliet in going. Oh that <laughs> oh that too, yeah. Um makes me cringe by the way. <laughs> <laughs> really? Although we joke, we talk about the fact that, you know, when we first saw Jack's story and we saw how close he became with the FBI agent, mm-hmm. you know, that's, it's interesting that that has a little bit of a parallel in our right, story. Right, because as sure. I understand it, you, an FBI agent, moved next door to you just like the mm-hmm. Stan moves. No, that wasn't Joe. It was somebody else. It was actually a male and a female. Uh-huh. They pretended to be a married couple and they would actually go to work in the morning and then come back. I, By this point, they were on to you. They were observing me. They, yes, they were onto me simply because of the uh, uh, the Matrokin notes had my name, so they knew that I was here as an illegal, but they didn't know what I was still doing, if anything. Because this is after the fall of the. Oh yes, Soviet it was. It was. I think seven, seven or eight years after my, after I sent them the good goodbye letter. It's not a real defection in the sense that I didn't contacted uh, authorities you just quit i just quit yeah so you quit you stayed here and then years later yep. the fbi uh-huh. gets some information that you're an illegal and that's ironically after you've quit correct and and that raises an interesting question in that you know i quit because i i could not uh, i could not see myself leave my one-year-old daughter at the time the question that I can't answer in my mind if the if the FBI had caught that window where I could have been turned before I quit. Uh, if they had caught me sort of mm, what would you six have done? months prior, would I have? I don't know. 
I can't say. Hmm. It's a good chance that I would have succeeded, but they didn't know me then. Right, and it was too late once. Yeah, when, at that point, you know, I was useless. You know, I, 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 I couldn't possibly tell the Russians, oh, by the way, I'm back. Yeah, but <laughs> how, how is it to quit the KGB? I mean, you're here, you're an illegal, you're an important asset, and you just say, it was a very scary. nice working with you. I'm well, going to be flexible I'm... on the retirement package, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I'm done. Well, it's... Dental benefits, <laughs> keep those. Well, benefits you was... Always go there. <laughs> I know, I always <laughs> there. Um, Well, I came up with probably the best way of telling them that I was serious and at the same time also telling them that I really didn't mean any harm because I told him I had contracted AIDS. And uh, AIDS was a death sentence and it wasn't something you don't want to let anybody with AIDS into your country. They were deathly afraid of this this disease. And it was quite justified. You know, it was communicable and it, it was a death sentence. And they bought it. When how did, how you, did you know they bought it? Because I, in, in the same letter, I, I told them that uh, you know I wasn't I wasn't going to contact American <laughs> authorities. And oh, by the way, please give the money that I that has been saved on my account, which was a fortune by East German standards, was about sixty thousand dollars to to my wife. Well, they gave her the money, so they that did. means they bought it. And they also told uh-huh. her that I died from AIDS. I got that feedback after you know I got reconnected with my son who who knew the story as I just told you and to be true that that I was you know so Joe and Joel it must seem like vindication or something when you hear that for Jack a, such a big part of his the reason that he stayed was about children and and family which is kind of why you have Elizabeth and and Philip so torn about leaving or staying and, and the future, right? I think the truth is we build a lot of our story just by thinking about human beings. So it does feel good, but also it's not surprising yeah. because we know that spies are people. So you're on safe territory if, if you treat them as such. Yeah. And I think also the other thing is you hear about him talking about how his name was re- revealed in the Matrokin archive. Uh-huh. Well, that that archive and particularly the way it was described in a series of books by the British historian Christopher Andrew, is is available to us. We've used it extensively. Mm-hmm. We know most of what we know about illegals from, from that book, so we've been able to build from that resource. Mm-hmm. And putting that together, there's a lot in there to, to work with as well. Mm. So, again, in the Americans, there's been this, this ongoing sort of struggle of, like, maybe their handlers saying, you need to go home, it's too dangerous, you need to go home, but the thing that keeps them here is their children, but also you get the sense that maybe for Philip especially. He likes kind of, a good life. He likes it yeah. here. I mean, he, what was, you must have been a good communist when you were recruited. I mean, mm-hmm. did you, was there this process of converting, as it were, to capitalism? Or Well, I was a good communist uh, when I was recruited. I was a good communist for the most part while I was still here. I turned into a good socialist. <laughs> Bernie would be proud. Slippery slope. Uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I, I don't want to share with you where I wound up. You might get scared. Uh, I, you know, I'm not. I'm not joining the militia. So, uh, but, but anyway, um, there was a. There was from very early on. There was a dichotomy in in that. You know, I was working on 
on bringing down the system whose products I enjoyed very much. Mm. But that was not enough for me to to doubt the, the communist ideal or, or even the idea that uh, eventually communism will win over. What, what really created a big chink in the armor was after almost 15 years of not being part of a team, I became a member of a team that was really functioning very well. So, uh, you know, I was became a computer programmer and I worked on a team with a whole bunch of really smart mm. guys in a in a in a very caring environment, you know, the old-style insurance company that uh, really took care of you cradle to grave, almost like a communist state. <laughs> and I really felt at home here. That, But once I defected, so to speak, uh, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to any of these things. Uh, you know, I had a family to take care of. I put this all aside. But my, my move away from communism only really was completed un until I started really thinking about things. Uh, and it had a lot to do with, you know, being caught by the FBI, being interrogated, yeah. being questioned, and like starting to reflect as to, you know, where I came from and what reality is nowadays. So, I, I read somewhere that um, the FBI actually caught you, so to speak, when you yelled, when you're having an argument with your wife and you yelled that you were a spy and they were listening in and they overheard it. Is that true? That is indeed true. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Was that when your wife found out for the first time? That is also true. We, wow. uh, well, it, it, we, we had an argument. Actually, it was, uh, the context was that we were nearing our 10-year anniversary and the marriage was sort of like not really working too well. And so we had this, I started a discussion in the kitchen. And and uh, my suggestion was, you know what, we never really got married. Why don't we get married? And she, she's Catholic. Why don't we get married in the church and do that? And it was always back and forth. And, you know, and I figured maybe if I choose the nuclear option, and tell her what I sacrificed and to be with the, her child and her, maybe it would change her attitude about me. So that's when I said, "Look, here, by the way, my, you know, I'm doing. I did this, this, and this, and I, I sacrificed." It's a great scene for a movie. I'm thinking. <laughs> boy, is that boy, yeah. is that a good scene? Whoa! Yeah. And, and what did she say? And and you can't use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it backfired. You know, I obviously I can't recall the details, but she felt that she was I deceived her, regardless of you know the result and all that. It's, and you got arrested. Yeah, that well, was tell like us really the worst plan ever. Right. So tell us. So you you <laughs> you, you drop that bombshell, and then how long between that moment and your first talk with the FBI, and how did that come about? Well, it. I don't know exactly, but I believe, and this is my my friend Joe, who led the investigation, said it didn't take much longer after, after that to to get the warrant for my arrest, and uh, and it wasn't officially an arrest. They introduced themselves, and it was a and, you know it was a fake traffic stop at a uh, at a toll gate across, at a bridge across the Delaware, and sort of an isolated area. Uh, n not there's not a lot of traffic. It's uh, it's just south of the Delaware Water Gap. That that bridge is not much in use. And yeah, they waved me over, and, and some state trooper. I don't know if he was fake or real, but <laughs> uh, he certainly looked like one. And then then Joe came from the background. He f 
I didn't even need to uh, look at the credentials. I knew what that was. You know, so we, this is Joe Riley. Joe Riley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you feel when when he came in? What did what did he say? And how did you feel? Uh, well, he said, "FBI, we would like to talk with you. Could you please follow us and step in the car?" That's now him telling me. At that point, my face lost an all color. I, I mm -hmm. turned to completely white. Uh, also, then. Based on his recollection, I recovered very quickly. And so, you know, we get in the car, we, we drive off, uh, and after a couple of minutes, the first question I asked, am I under arrest? And the answer was no. And then after I digested that, I don't know, I just sort of have that, want to call it a talent or whatever, to make some really silly remarks. I said, so what took you so long? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was an icebreaker. <laughs> they laughed? Yeah. <laughs> Not for long, because they had some serious business to do. They still didn't know, you know how I would react. But uh, um, it was... It, from that moment on, the whole atmosphere became you set a tone. relaxed. You yeah. set a tone yeah, with that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, that was a, instinctive. Yeah. I didn't think about it. It's such a moving story, because it all starts with the deepest such painful places in your heart i mean it's really it's yeah. it's a beautiful story yeah I, do, I mean does the americans feel accurate to you i don't mean like with the wigs and so on i mean psychologically this this living with deception and yet trying to have some truth between individuals yeah that's that's absolutely uh, the strength of the show other than you know the artistic value that uh, you can't make an entertaining show about uh, uh, illegals without compressing and you know making one or two characters out of many as well as you know compressing the timeline getting rid of all the boring stuff that you go through the, all the waiting and all that right, right. so so all of this is not so real uh the the wigs we I, we talked about this a little <laughs> bit you know there there were some people that I trained with, you know, surveillance uh, uh, groups that they used wigs too. Yeah. Uh, so I did. I never did. Uh, but but when it comes down to the psychology of living in a in another country, uh, pretending to be somebody else, knowing that knowing that you're not, is is as accurate as uh, as I could myself predict uh, mm -hmm. depicted. It's it's really good. And so when I watched the very first episode and you know I think I sent you an email with the responses uh, I could relate to a lot of that stuff the, the emotions and the the, uh, the the thoughts that come with that kind of a life can I ask you something at the end I feel like it's a, a I'm sorry for the cliche part of this question but when the FBI finally showed up that mm -hmm. day as terrifying as it was in so many ways that was there a part of you that was relieved? Mm, to some degree, but what I, I was really worried about what would happen to my children. Right. I mean, that was the biggest worry. And, and for, you know, there was a period of about a month during which I had to take a lie detector test. And, you know, there, until I got sort of a definitive answer what would happen to me, uh, I was stressed. Right. Uh, so... At that point, it was never about me. You know, it sounds like, you know, I'm making myself look better, but it's, it's uh, no. But eventually, w w once we got to a point where 
where the future became clear. Yeah, all that, you know, the, the stuff that I had sort of put way back into into my head and like, like sort of locked up in, in concrete, I let it out mm. and let it go. Mm. And, and but, but was, you know, this is, uh, catharsis is a widely overused word, but what really uh, made me whole was my ability to go back to Germany mm. and reconnect with my past. And it was worth getting fired over. Because you know what the thing is, you know why are you going public? Well, it it uh, it it's ha it has a different uh, feel to it when you get in front out in front of the world and say, "This is who I was. This is who I am." Other than just telling a few people in private. So. Uh, well, you spent your whole life not telling anyone. That's who right. You were. That's right. And now I'm sharing too much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Jack. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks again to Jack Barsky, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. Please come back next week to hear us talk about episode 403, Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow, with more fantastic special guests. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. I'm June Thomas. This show is part of the Panoply Network. <laughs>